Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And for you listening online, good morning to you also. We are in the Gospel of Mark. I will try to settle down a little bit from talking about those satanic influences that are trying to jam down our throats half-truths that will halt the preaching of the gospel. And I don't think it should, I don't think any pastor should be comfortable or uh, indifferent about it. I think all of us should be very strongly against having, again, lies shut down the truth. All right, now to get into the spirit. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. We are going to discuss this morning struggling to obey. Well, that just got everybody uh, hopefully involved because all who name Christ as Lord do struggle. That's why uh, the verse that's been coming up, I think the last three times I've been in the pulpit is out of Titus. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. They say they love the Lord, but really they have no intention of agreeing with him. They want the salvation, but they do not want the struggle. They, do, they want the blessings, but they do not want the interference of Christ. And these things, they're, they're, if you think that way, you're hurting yourself. It is, it is the glory of our faith is to line up with Jesus Christ, everything that he says, regardless of how difficult, unpleasant it may be. And we all know this. That's why we applaud the martyrs who go to their death, and many times an awful death, because they will not walk away from what Christ has said, what he has spoken. So a brief review. Oh, we have to stand and read the word. Don't want to miss that. I'm settling down. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. We will stand and read, and then we will... See what the Holy Spirit has for us. Would you stand, please? (laughs) Beginning at verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them, straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and cried out. For they all saw him, and were troubled. But immediately... He talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Then they had crossed over. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that he might just touch 
that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Please be seated. We have been watching the story Mark has preserved for us. From chapter 5, for example, we watched the apostles tossed in the storm. And of course, the Lord saying to us today from these events that there are troubles and there are dangers, but I am Lord over these also. Continuing to watch him in action, we saw him uh, faced with a maniac. There he, he faced with insanity, of course. He overcame that, cast out the demons, and continued to minister where he was permitted to minister. Then we watched his solutions as he dealt with disease and death. We watched him be rejected in his hometown. We learn in life what it's like to be disliked. When, even when we've not done anything to deserve being disliked. We watched him grieve just for a moment when news of John's murder had reached him, reached him. And then the hand of sovereignty as he multiplied the fish and the bread. It's an interesting miracle that was because he multiplied baked fish and uh, baked bread and cooked fish. I mean, it's just these little things that stand out about the sovereignty and the power of Jesus Christ, it is supposed to encourage us to be strong, strong in our faith, even though when we have this sinful nature that works against everything that is holy and right. But again, the story now calls on me to ask myself as I am faced with the record of how would I perform? What does this have to do with me today? Why am I reading this story in Mark chapter 6 and hoping that God will speak to me through it? Uh, Well, let's see if we find out. Look again at verse 45. I know we covered this in the last session, but it belongs in both, both paragraphs. Immediately, verse 45, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. So just, again, a little more review. After he had fed the people uh, there where they were, they were at Bethsaida, the house of the the fish, a fishing village there on the Lake of Galilee. After he fed them, they wanted to make him their king, force him to be their king. They had the golden goose, and they weren't ready to let it go. They did not want to crown him for his holiness, that is, his person, or his teachings, but it was the goodies that he offered. That's what attracted a certain element in that multitude of upward 15,000 people. John tells us this in the sixth chapter of his gospel. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that They were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. That is, of course, the parallel account that is given to us in the Gospel of John. No interest in submitting to him. How can you submit to your king as someone you're supposed to submit to? How can you force somebody to be a king? It, It contradicts. 
And yet we have many even Christians that insist that Jesus is their king, but they really are not interested in obeying the things they don't like. They want to cherry pick the commandments, a very dangerous practice. And so, again, looking at how Jesus dealt with satanic influence that was contrary to God, even found in one of his beloved apostles. He said to Peter, when Peter was not looking, not submitting to Christ, not looking beyond this life. And he said, be it far from you that you should go to the cross, not understanding that it is that cross that would bring about our forgiveness and our time in paradise without end. Mark chapter 8, Jesus responded to Peter's words and said, Get behind me, Satan, where you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Of course, the Lord always looking at the Father, always interested in what God wants, he being God the Son. But Satan doesn't care for men. When he says Satan is mindful of the things of men, he doesn't mean Satan cares for men. He means Satan wants to get the eyes of people off of God and onto things that they can see. So they can live more in that Esau type of way. Uh, What good is a blessing when I'm hungry? Spiritual things are secondary to Esau, but they were primary to Jacob. And they are supposed to be this way with us. Where he says here in verse 35, to the other side, to Bethsaida. Luke tells us they were in Bethsaida. So how could he send them from where they were? Well, two, two answers to that. The lesser one, that I, I don't care for this one too much, but it is possible. There were two Bethsaidas. Many scholars agree with that. Now, that's fine, and that's not uncommon. And so you're sending them from one to the other. Because the name, again, House of the Fish is in a fishing village type town. Uh, not, not far-fetched. But what is uh, really I think what really reconciles the verse is grammatically, the Greek allows it to be translated this way, to go to the other side from Bethsaida. So he says, to the other side of Bethsaida, where he's sending them. Now, we think linearly in this way, that if they're standing in the north and he says, go to the other side, he must mean he's sending them to the south. Or if he's standing in the west and he says to the other side, it must be the east. But that is not at all what is happening. And we'll bring some of that out in a moment. When he says go to the other side of Bethsaida, he's talking about where they came from. The Capernaum area, which was his base of operations. They will not land directly there, but they're going to go in that direction. John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 17. Again, the parallel verse. They got into the boat. And went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Now, the Capernaum part is what I wanted, but I wanted to continue to read that part of this verse that spoke, that, that's giving us the environment. He's sending them away. The sun is setting. It's dark. They're on the sea. They've got about a six mile journey to get from Bethsaida to. Uh, the area of the Capernaum, Gennesaret, where they're going to land. And John, of course, adding Jesus had not come. So the scene is set. It's dark. They're without Christ in the boat. That's what we're looking at this morning. Verse 46. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Jesus prayed every chance he got. He took the chance to pray whenever he could. Is this the one that would later cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, This is big news to me. 
We see him often, you know, getting away from the multitudes and, and just praying. And here he says to his disciples, listen, Satan is influencing this. I'm not the golden goose. I want you men out of here. Get in the boat. Go to the other side. And then he goes to pray. He knew that with, without the many miracles, there'd be far less interest in him. He knew that all the time. He knew that if it was just his teaching... The multitudes might come out for a while, but they would not last. John the Baptist did no miracles, and multitudes came out to hear John. But John's ministry only went but so far. And he knew that prayer would not fix everything, something that I know, but I'm still not learning as fast as I want to learn, because I still think prayer should fix everything. And I get so frustrated when prayer seems to be ungranted on Matters that are of great importance. John's Gospel, chapter 17. Jesus said to his father in prayer, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Well, we have no reason to doubt. He also prayed for Judas. I, I am of the mind that when he picked Judas, Judas was not the man he would end up being, although the Lord knew he would be. Judas had every chance to do the right thing. Anything other than that, then you charge God with sovereignly deciding that Judas should be born just to go to hell. And that is not free will, and I believe in free will, and I not for one second do I believe that, even though the Father knew it does not mean he caused it. And so... Here our Lord praying all the time, yet also at one point in his ministry, saying to us, as much prayer, as much service, as much dying as you do for the Father, there will be those times of great perplexity when you want to cry out and say, God, why have you forsaken me? Now we can answer why he was saying, because he took our sin upon himself. He bore our judgment for us. And he was preaching to us. He was saying, even though I'm bearing your judgment on me, I am still calling on my Father. So it's profound that there on the cross, he is still praying. And the words that he prayed meant so much not to him, but also to the Father. And So we know that the one who walked on the water, who raised the dead, who stopped the diseases who created the cooked fish and the baked bread, we know that to him, our ungranted prayers are very meaningful to him. That alone should be enough to sustain us. Now, when I'm going through tough times and God is not granting my prayers, I want him to grant my prayers. But in the back of my head, I know that even if he says no, even if he remains silent, what it is that I'm saying to him is very meaningful. It's a very easy thing to prove, is it not? Just instead of praying, stop blaspheming him. Yeah, you, you can't because you know he hears you. You know that he is sovereign and you love him. And those words aren't going to come out of your mouth, no matter the pressure that is upon you. And we know the mark of a true believer is belief in truth Enough, enough truth to suffer and to endure, and no matter what is granted or not granted. 
Hell hates this. I'm not fond of it myself. But I don't hate it. I submit to it. We know that our endurance in Christ Jesus mocks and frustrates and defeats a very ghoulish hell. And it does the same to the world. They hated that Daniel was the righteous man that he was. And so they'd look at ways to stop him so that they could be corrupt without having him around to salt the environment. Believing without satisfaction, the Bible says, is enormous. James chapter 5, verse 11, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. We count them blessed who take a punch in the interest of the king because they hold to the truth. Now, the world takes punches too, but they don't hold to the truth. And that is what distinguishes us from them. And that is also a reminder to us that life is to be ministry for Christ. Life includes me being a family person, but it's much more than that. That's not enough. If you get to heaven and say, well, I I had a good family. It's not enough. There should be a burden for other people, for other lost souls also. And it is a tragedy when Christians become so focused on their family that they're no longer burdened by lost souls. Would you like a pastor that said something else? Would you like a preacher to come up and say, no, just take care of your family and let everybody rot in hell? Of course not. When you hear it that way, you say that. That is not right. That is wrong. I should have a burden for lost souls because I don't want to go to hell. Why would I want anybody else to? But to learn how to pull it off, to learn how to serve, to learn how to do it without burning out, without becoming self-righteous and judgmental, these are reasons why we expose ourselves to the Scripture and the characters in the Bible. Now, we're going to also be accused of being malicious and mean for just telling the truth, no matter how you say it. Well, we can't let that stop us from telling the truth can't stop people from falling on your sword if they insist on falling on it. Verse 47. Now, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Hopefully, I can tie this all in for us as we move forward. The middle of the sea does not mean the center point of the Sea of Galilee. We learn how to read read Scripture this way because Scripture explains it to us. For example, back to John chapter 6. Then... The sea arose, a great wind was blowing, so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Well, the Sea of Galilee is larger than uh, eight miles. I mean, for them to be in the center would not fit. So, of course, what Mark is saying is they're they're in the middle of their their, uh, trek, their journey. Three or four miles. As I mentioned earlier, it's about six to Gennesaret, give or take a little bit more. And so that's all is kind of just sailing right along for us. Uh, Catch the (laughs) nautical metaphor. Verse 48. Then he saw them straining at rowing. Well, the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Now the story gets really good, at least to me. Oh, first thing, when he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. He saw them, distanced, it was nothing, no big thing for him. It is for us, because when he doesn't show up and I'm struggling, 
I'm saying, where is he? How, why does God seem so far away? Why does he seem not to care? He says, I always see. I always care. I just don't do it your way. I do it my way. Because my way is better. And if you don't believe that, you're going to find out when you get to heaven. You're going to find out, as it says in the very beginning of our Bibles, and he saw that it was good. When God made man and woman, he saw that it was good. He did not see it as, hmm, we need to fix this. This is broken. As they used to say, even back in the 70s and earlier, he made them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And we should remind uh, folks that, you know, for, for someone to say, well, I've always felt that I was, you know, the opposite sex from the time I was a kid. Well, I had kind of thoughts like that, too. I always felt that other people's desserts should be mine since I was a kid. That doesn't make it right. That's how the world thinks. They think that they have a sensation. It justifies sin. And God says, stop downsizing this stuff. This is deadly. Sin is no joke. And we who preach the gospel should be very mindful of that. I wonder how many, how many teens are in the sanctuary who right now just aren't even listening. I wonder how many adults in the sanctuary just aren't even listening. Uh, you know, at the preaching of God's word, you would hope that everybody would be on the edge of their seats. Waiting for God to just minister to them. Albeit through a flawed vessel, God can still pour from a cracked pot. <laughs> Into cracked pots. So, here's the story. Then he saw them straining at rowing. Straining at the oars. All of them rowing together. Not different. I want to go this way. No, let me go that way. All rowing together. Even Judas is cooperating in this boat. In the midst of this disturbed sea. They were struggling. What were they struggling to do? Well, survive. Not capsize. Which is one reason why they probably didn't turn around. But they're struggling together because he told them, go to the other side. He didn't say, go halfway out and if it gets rough, come back. See, this is, what, this is how we get the lessons out. We read this. Why has the Holy Spirit preserved this language in this manner? There must be a lesson here. That's why Jesus would say, have you not read what David did? And that Paul would say, hey, do you know, did, what about the bonds? I mean, we bring up stories from the scripture. Because there are our, our instructions. Here they are, obediently struggling to roll forward, and they're not getting anywhere. Sounds like serving Christ sometimes. Struggling. I mean, personally, as just a Christian man, reading and rowing, that's my Christian life. Reading what he said, getting my orders, and then trying to row forward with that. And yet, I find oftentimes I'm straining at rowing, and I get upset with him for not making things easier. Because we're, built, we're, just built messed, we're messed up. We weren't built that way originally. We were ruined. Sin has done this to us. And as he has seen me so often, as he has watched the faithful 
strain to obey against the winds of life, he still does. And this ability to keep rowing, to keep going on in the direction he sent me, it's not by accident. It's his influence. To face resistance in Christ is because of Christ. We wouldn't be able to do it without him. And this ability comes from his very love for us and his focus on what he is going to do and use us to do it. I mean, we pin medals on generals for sending thousands of men to their deaths on the battlefield. Does not Christ, our King of Kings, the Lord of Hosts, the Lord of Hosts is, is primarily a battlefield uh, title for him. When the multitudes, when armies show up, he's the Lord of armies in heaven and on earth, in the physical and the spiritual realm. And so he has the right to order me to whatever destination he wants, and he has the right to watch me struggle in an effort to comply with his orders. So when, when Jesus tells you, I want you to do this, and you do not want to do it, you are struggling. But is it willful? Or are you just making up your mind, I'm going to find, here's where it gets ugly. It's one thing to say, Lord, I'm trying to roll forward, I can't get anywhere, I'm messing it up. It's an entirely different thing to say, well, let me change the destination. Let me, you told me to go across to, towards Capernaum, I'm going to go a different direction. I'm going towards Gadara, where the maniac was. You see, that's what's happening often today. And it's, the way I'm hearing it is it's coming from our young adults in Christ. They're saying they're Christians. Not all of them. Of course not all of them. But enough of them are insisting they are Christians while they're rowing in some other direction. And they get ugly when the rest of us who are rowing towards the direction commanded point that out. What are we supposed to do? Continue rowing where we're going and not give an inch. Paul said, I did not yield to them for one hour. And essentially, it doesn't mean 60 minutes. He said, I didn't budge. They were wrong. And I stood up to them. I stood up to Simon Peter because he was wrong. I stood up to Barnabas, my friend, because he was wrong. And this was a big deal. And Christianity would have stopped right there in Antioch, Syria, if Paul did not stand up to his two friends and say, look, I love you, but you are wrong. Because, you know, they were playing those games when the Jews from James had arrived up in Antioch from Jerusalem. All of a sudden, Jew, uh, Peter and Barnabas became very Jewish and anti-Gentile. And Peter and Paul would have none of it. And we should catch some of this spirit. I have also discovered in, in this, you know, then he saw them straining at rowing. It's a lot easier to watch these men row on paper than to me row in life. I mean, just, oh, they're straining, but they're apostles. They'll make it through. He's going to walk to them, and then it's my turn in the boat. That's what I meant earlier. Now we get to see ourselves again. Far away, as these men are struggling to obey Christ, far away is Herod and Pilate and Caesar and the world. The world is doing its thing, and the believers were doing their thing, obeying Jesus. That was what they were interested in doing. And so within the fight, within the fight that we are engaged in, 
for the interest of Christ, there's also the fight within us against the flesh. As Harry Ironside said, I've got this traitor that lives in my heart. Me, my fallen nature that has an appetite for things forbidden and is very serious about satisfying that appetite. And so at night, without Jesus in the boat, they are struggling. They're not getting anywhere. They've got to be exhausted. This is going on for hours, incidentally, because we're going to get a time stamp in a moment. And so the resistance we meet with, again, going back to Daniel, because it's going to take Christ walking on the water to reach these men to save them. And it still takes Christ exercising his miraculous powers if he's going to save me from anything, and especially myself. Daniel ten thirteen. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. This is an angelic being speaking, telling Daniel. There is spiritual resistance. We've tried to reach you, Daniel, on this sea while you're rowing forward, but we have been intercepted by wickedness. We've not been able to get to you on time. Well, in a timely way. He got to him on time, but not, a, not as fast as Daniel would have liked it. And so he offers this explanation. And we read this and we say, okay, what does the New Testament have to say about this, aside from all that Jesus was doing in his life? We hear Paul say, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Principalities, power, spiritual wickedness in high places. There are other elements that I'm up against. This is why every time Jesus gets a chance in the scripture to pray, he's praying. He's talking to his father. It's recorded so we could read it and say, I'm going to do the same thing. What, what parent, what mother does not like to see the daughter imitate them? What father does not like to see his son imitate him? I mean, when they're little guys. I mean, not when they're in their 40s. And then say, you're mocking me. <laughs> but, but as a child, of course, you want to see them say, that's the direction I want to go in, where you are. And well, that's what we want to do with God. You are the God who sees. Hagar learned that lesson. One of the earliest sections of scripture where Yahweh is actually seen. Genesis chapter 16. And then she called. And she's dying. You know, things are going bad for her. And, then, and the Lord comes to her. And then she called on the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? So they're, they're on the lake and Jesus sees them just as it was with Hagar and Yahweh because Jesus is Yahweh. Recognition, that recognition of truth in her life changed her life as it did the apostles. Remember, they were they're 30, 20 years out writing, uh, having these things written down. And it was to them like it was yesterday. It was more than they could remember. But they remembered enough. And we're kind of happy that they didn't remember everything because it's already a lot of reading. So how, how big would the Bible be if they remembered all of it? 
Now, about the fourth watch, it tells us in verse 48, that is 3 to 6 a.m. So when he sends them out, the sun was setting, it was getting dark. Now it's maybe 3 in the morning. Could be later. They were rowing a long time. Enduring, agonizing, trapped. You ever felt trapped as a Christian? Have you ever felt, I'm just trapped? It's, this stinks. There's no, I can't go to the left. I can't go to the right. I can't get out of this. I can't snap my fingers and be better. I'm trapped. Well, you're not the only one. In this section, there they are, trapped at sea. They couldn't turn around. They had to row forward. And as I've, at the risk of repeating myself, rowing forward against resistance, not getting anywhere. So now about the fourth watch. He came to them walking on the sea. Uh, Is that a little irritating? Why did he wait? He saw them earlier. Why not just help them out? Give a brother a break. Because his, his ways are higher than ours. And they're better. And we learn to love him in spite of it. He came to them walking on the sea. The same wind that resisted them could not resist him. That's one of the lessons. We know this. He outpaced them. He was going to pass them by. I don't know about you, but I think this is hysterical. (laughs) I mean, they could have just added, he was walking backwards. (laughs) Moonwalking past them. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been. (laughs) Just put down your oars. This is just humiliating. Experienced fishermen. So what was his intent? He's walking on the sea. That's miraculous. Tantamount to flying. He would have passed them by. Was he trying to make a point? (laughs) Yes, he was. When he rose from the dead and he found the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he joins them in their conversation. And it is a comical scene to some degree. So what are you guys talking about? (laughs) Where have you been? (laughs) That's what they said to him. Then Luke writes, Then... They drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. Thank God he didn't. I mean, there's something there that Jesus says there are going to be times where I will pass by and keep going unless unless you call out to me, unless you hold me there next to you. I'm not going to be rude and force myself, even on my own people. I think that's one of the great parts of this lesson, because when they call out, He he instantly answers them. Well, we could stay on this part about he came to them walking on the sea, the kind of a dramatic entrance, and would have passed them by. But let's move forward to verse 49. And when he saw and when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. (laughs) They thought it was the Grim Reaper. I mean, they didn't think it was a ghost just casually out. Oh, look at that. A ghost sighting. It was like, he's coming for us. Useful lessons. Sometimes we don't recognize our Lord. He's just that awesome. Uh, Sometimes he just, you know, we're too caught up in the storm, in the resistance, in the struggle. And we don't see him right there. What I try to do is just settle it down. Just, just, Just try to calm everything down and just submit 
try to stop everything, get to mechanical zero. Just stop and hope that he will minister to me. Sometimes our lack of understanding causes us to be afraid of him because we don't recognize that it is he who is the one that is doing the things that we're faced with. God does not abandon one of the lessons, a struggling soul in the path of obedience. It feels like that sometimes. And Satan wants us to believe that we have been abandoned. Jacob felt that way when he wrestled with the Lord until finally he just submitted. Just bless, I can't let you go till you bless me. Now, some of you have said, I've been there. It doesn't work that smoothly. That's, that's correct. That is, that is faith overcoming the curse. And many times it's not smooth. What if they were determined to go forward without him in the boat, without going, ah, oh, there's a ghost, and just continue, as many in the world do? They would have never reached their destination. Some are determined to row through life without his miraculous walk into their life. They're free to do so. Uh, had they turned back, if they could have turned back, they would have accomplished nothing. They just would have been tired. You know, there's a saying, if you, you know, there are times if you retreat, you die tired. Um, if you run away. If they had turned back, ministry would have stopped. That should mean something to Christians. What is ministry? I, I th again, I think some Christians don't understand. Yeah, I think the, the church is the centerpiece of ministry. It's not the only piece. And I also believe to be independent of the church is to be wrong when given the choice. I also believe that those in countries who cannot assemble to worship wish they could assemble to worship. To be able to freely amongst the brethren, have communion, to pray together, to fellowship after service or before, to sit and have God's word just said to them. May we, may we never take this for granted. Verse 50. Well, they all saw him and were troubled, but immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer as I do not be afraid. What quieted them? The voice. It is the voice of God that changed everything. In my earlier days, it seemed that God spoke to me so many times. I'm with you. I've got this. I'm okay. It's okay. Now it's just like, what are you going to do? You know the drill, O teacher of Israel. What are you going to do? He doesn't even say it. It's kind of like it's a flashing neon sign. What are you going to do? Because he treats me like I'm supposed to have matured. I don't like it. I don't like it. I love to hear him say, I got this. I love to hear him say, I am with you. I'm not fond of, hey, let's use faith. Oh. Well, I thought I was using it. We were getting along so well that way. What happened? Crying out to Christ. I'm not the one that moved. You moved. I'm still talking to you, but I don't hear you talking to me. And yet, I get up off my knees, I do what I'm told as best I can. Because I have enough truth. And it just takes a pinch of truth. It's, to put it this way. It takes a pinch of incense to blaspheme God. That's why the Christians were persecuted. They would say, look, just, just put a pinch of incense and go about your business. You can worship Jesus Christ, but just put a little incense on the altar to Caesar and we'll leave you alone. And they refused. Well, it works the other way too. 
just a pinch of truth submitted to rocks hell. So when James says, how great a forest, a little fire kindles, that goes both ways. You can start a big fire for God, too, with just a little fire. Satan does not get all the advantages, though he gets many. It was the sound of his voice. It was one word in the Greek where he says, be of good cheer. That's a single word. And it means just what it says. He's speaking to their emotions. It it has within it, okay, the best I could maybe transfer this is, he's saying to them, chill out. That is true. Because the word has in it, in the meaning, courage, but that's not all of it. And this, again, be of good cheer, is supposed to make them feel safer. It is also uh, to their minds when he says, it's me, it is I, me. That's supposed to make them say, ah, we know who you are, we recognize you. And then when he says, do not be afraid, that is a word to their will. So he's speaking to the whole heart of the person. The brains, the emotions, and the will. That is the heart of a Christian. When, you, when the scripture says you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, that really includes everything else. Take the heart away, you take the life away. Courage can be commanded. We don't like to have it commanded. But it has worked on battlefields. It has worked in ministries. It has worked throughout history. That's why God said in Joshua 1, Have not I commanded you? I've commanded you to be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For Yahweh, your God, is with you wherever you go. I want to feel that. And I have felt that many times in ministry. But over the years, I don't feel it as much. But I know it's just as true. And I also know this, that that counts to my favor with the Lord. I know he enjoys that. There he is. He doesn't feel it, but he's still doing it. Because we've gotten past that whole thing about, let me see another miracle and I'll believe. We're now working with raw truth. And he can do that. By, with his help. Terror can be defeated. Well, by his help, I ended that statement. Now, the next statement. I made it sound connected. Well, it is to some degree. Terror. We're watching this in our society. A society of people with low-grade terror. You can see it in their eyes as they walk around. Who are you afraid of? There are, there are worse things that can happen to you. Psalm chapter 3 I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Why could, why could the psalmist say that? Why could a King David say that? Because of his Lord, his faith. I don't care if everybody's against me. It's hard to do that. We don't want to be disliked. We don't want people to think the wrong things of us. We want to justify ourselves. We don't, often we don't get a chance. The Bible says, you better be more mindful of what God thinks. And if you got that one right, you've got power. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. It is an act of the will, like love. Love is an act of the will. The world's definition of love is an act of the emotions. You've got to feel it. And that's an element of 
phileo or stroge or other forms of, of love in the Greek, using the Greek words. But that agape, that high love, that love that comes from the touch of God, it's an act of the will. It is not an act of anything less. It can have feelings in it, but it goes just as well without them. His nearness, it makes a difference. And that's what we're getting out of this story. He came near the boat until he gets in the boat. That's what I want. We call it communion. Prayer and communion. Prayer is me talking to God, and God can talk back to me. It's a di- it can be a dialogue. It is not always. I think I talk to God a lot more than he talks to me. But communion. Communion is rhythm. It is union with God. It is, I belong at the table. I have a place at the table. My name is at the table here on earth and there in heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise. Well, if it's not going to be today, it's going to be. Because he gives me a say-so in this matter. Just as he gave Judas, just as he gave Balaam, just as he gave Jezebel, just as he gave every... Satan had a choice. Satan chose to exalt himself, to be like the Most High. as the blunder of the universe. And in some ways, we're still paying for it. In many ways. His nearness, Daniel chapter 10, again. Here's what the messenger says, the angelic messenger says. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, or beloved, fear not. Peace to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. See, words are supposed to mean something because they're supposed to be attached to something else or someone else. So we say we consider the source. And when God says through either his scripture, through another believer, ergo a word in season, and we sense that it is the Holy Spirit, that this is right, we are strengthened. Unfortunately, some people think discernment means if I like it, it must be God. That's not discernment. Uh, Discernment is a recognition that this is consistent with his word. The circumstances support it. The word of God does not object to it, and the sense of the Holy Spirit is here. Not easy being led, but it is vital. Revelation chapter 1, we're still talking about, be not afraid, it is me. Revelation 1, this is when John was getting the revelation of Jesus Christ. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. In other words, I got all the power, and I'm telling you, don't be afraid. It'd be bad if it were the other way around. I have the power, and I'm telling you to be afraid. So, we need to know that he sees us when we struggle. We need to know that it is for us to row forward nonetheless until he walks to us on the sea and relieves us of the struggle. And that we must wait And while we wait, we row in the direction we were told to go in. Very simple, as far as instructions go. A whole other matter to pull it off. But we do it all the time. So you Christians who serve here in this ministry, how many times have you felt, oh, I got the kids tomorrow. Oh, I got usher duty tomorrow. I'm tired. I don't want to. I'm not ready. You're rowing, but you're there on time, right? Who's not? Show hands. (laughs) 
You're there at your post. You're not absent without leave. You're there at your post. Par bar by par bar. Two at the causeway, four at par bar. That's the old King James for Chronicles, I don't know, instructions to centuries. <laughs> this walking on the water is left out by Mark. I think he's just sensitive. Peter's, Peter, that's when I stepped out and walked in the water. And evidently Mark said, nah, we'll just leave that out. Matthew said, I won't. <laughs> John tells it, but Matthew, he's the one that says, and this is what Peter did. You know, I mean, he's, he irritated me just too much. Aren't we afraid that if we're around somebody too much, they're going to see how annoying we are? Go on a trip with somebody for a week and find out by the time Friday gets there. Oh, hi, good morning. You know, it's just it's this fact of life. Sometimes, as a pastor, I fear that I'm going to just be around folks so much that just, I am sick of hearing you. I'm not looking up. I am not looking up. Because <laughs> it's just, that's what goes with life. And it's awful. Anyway, verse 51. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Uh, I want to add a Spurgeon. Spurgeon's teaching, uh, preaching on Peter walking on the water. And he says, I do not advise any of you to try it. <laughs> Neither did our Lord advise Peter to do so. And hopefully that stabilizes a lot of wackiness in the church. You know, you get Christians, well, I'm just going to walk in the water. <clears throat> Go ahead. I'm not holding your hand. So, I mean, if, if God gives you that moment, then take it. But if you're making it yourself, just remember what happened to Peter. Anyway, he went up into the boat. They were amazed. They were blown away. It's sort of nonchalant, is it not? And he said, yeah, yeah. And he walks in the water. What would you expect? He's God. And no exaggeration, no sensationalism, no overstatements. Just the bare facts and leave it at that. They were rowing hard. They weren't getting anywhere. It was night. They were rowing for hours. He walked on the water. They were spooked by this whole thing. He said, be of good cheer, it is I. He joined the boat. The wind stopped. They were ashore. Next story. <laughs> Greatly amazed. Verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. And, and I don't judge them. If you want to judge them, you go right ahead. And, but you better have a better heart than they did. Uh, he does not rebuke them for this. I wonder, is Mark dropping a hint to his Roman audience? Is he suggesting to his readers that a hardened heart is due to blindness, to the facts, to the experiences, to the obvious in the spirit? I think he may be doing that. Uh, by this time, they should not have been as amazed as, because they had seen so much. I have not seen these miracles. I have watched him uh, minister through his truth, but I have not watched him raise the dead or walk on water. I have not witnessed what they saw. So why is Jesus Christ every bit my God to me that he was to them? Peter, he, struggled, he didn't struggle with it, but he points this out. Because years later, Peter came to churches where they were even Gentiles now. And he sees these people that didn't walk with Christ as he did. And he sees that they love Christ just as much as him without seeing all the miracles. He writes about it. 
First Peter chapter one, verse eight, he says, whom having not seen you love. He said, I saw him and I love him. You didn't have that benefit. and You love him just as much as me. Somehow doesn't seem fair. He says, no, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He says, I've seen you worshiping with this glory to the Lord. I could go on and on. I'll just take one more. We're almost, we're a little over time. Uh, John chapter 20, Jesus said to him, to Thomas, he's Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. So I don't need to see him walking on the water to believe him just as much as the apostles. There it is in the scripture. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's what we see, the truth. Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull where Christ was crucified. The most profound demonstration of the Father's love known to man. Because it is more painful for a loving father to watch his son suffer than to suffer himself. And, and to let it happen, quite a statement. So Paul writes, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us, the ungodly. Well, we'll just finish this up. We have to finish this chapter. It's the closing part is just a quick uh, summary or commentary. It was verse 53. <clears throat> but they had crossed over and they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And verse 54, and when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. And so the only vacation they got was a boat ride on the way to Bethsaida. That was it. And the ones that were working the boat to get to Bethsaida, they got nothing. Their reward. For tirelessly serving the Lord, rowing in the face of resistance. What was their reward? More ministry. What a lesson to those minimalist servants that will do just this much, but no more. Christ says, I know you're tired. As Moody would say, I'm tired in the work, not of the work. I have wrestled with that. And yet, I am still here, somehow. Sometimes you can see the back of my jacket being held up by an invisible hand. Verse 55, he ran through the whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. So after he gets out of the boat, of course, he's moving around and, and, and Mark is capturing that. Verse 56, wherever they, entered in, uh, <clears throat> wherever they entered into villages, cities, or the country, they lay the sick in the marketplace places and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment and as many as touched him were made made well so of course word got around of the woman with the issue that touched the hem of his garment the multitudes thronging against him people had to come up with a way hey we still got to get these blessings we can't reach him we all can't push the people on the stretchers to him so this is lay him out there and 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 have it happened that way. This is the greatest popularity these days of his ministry. They would not last. I want to close with a couple of verses. John chapter 2. And he said to him, every man at the beginning 
sets out the good wine, and when the guests have drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good until now. My point is this. The world has never seen anyone like this. The best is still yet to come. God has got a paradise for his people that will just make all of this sort of forgotten in eternity as we press forward with so many other things about him. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. Question. Were they waiting for him while they were rowing? I think they were. Waiting is not being stagnant. Waiting is doing something. Because in my father's house there are many mansions. And then Jesus says right after that. There are many dwelling places. If it wasn't so, I would not have told you. That's an emphasis there. And then he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And that includes us. Unless you reject him. And hopefully you won't. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. These stories are meant to strengthen us. To call upon us. To continue in our efforts to be obedient. To be useful to the kingdom. And we thank you. We also know that there are those that are exposed to the scripture, to the truths of Jesus Christ, and somehow, some way, they, they remain against him, will not submit, will not open their hearts, perhaps will acknowledge him, but not confess him as their Lord and Savior. If you're listening or watching online or in the church and you've never opened your eyes to Christ, you are outside his salvation. A salvation for those who come to him, but for those who have broken his commandments. You will not be saved from the judgment for those violations. So God, in his wisdom and love, has made a way for those who sin, who get it wrong before God, to be made right by God, but they have to come on their own free will. If you're here this morning and you'd like to open your heart to Jesus Christ, then all you need to do is make this prayer in earnest and he will receive you. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments. I come to you to be forgiven because no one else has died to take my punishment upon himself so that I could be forgiven and saved from judgment. No one else is righteous enough and God enough. But you. The Father and the Holy Spirit. And I come and I give my life to you right here right now. And I ask that you would forgive me. And that I would be one of your, one of your own. And now Father if anyone has made this prayer. We commit it to your hands. And we ask that they would not be ashamed of their confession. In Jesus name. Amen.